If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me this evening to Hebrews 13. We come to the final message in our Hebrews series. This series has been 63 sermons long, one of the uh, longer series that I have ever preached. Uh, We had several mini-series along that. It was not all just Hebrews uh, as we went in various directions uh, as the Lord led and as opportunity arose. The primary objective of this series has been to contemplate the superiority of Christ. As is typical with many Pauline epistles, it begins doctrinal and then transitions into exhortation. And the exhortation has been that if Jesus is who he says he is and is greater in every way than the law which he fulfilled, then nothing should hinder us from the utmost faith in him. And if we recall our audience, this Hebrew audience, and the zeal that the Hebrew audience at that time had for the law, then the appeal would not be falling on deaf ears or complacent ears, but rather, effectively, Paul would be saying to them, in the same manner that you served with such zeal and with such devotion, with such fervor to the Old Testament law, how much more should your zeal and your devotion and fervor be placed upon Christ, your faith be placed upon Christ, considering the immense greatness of Christ when compared to that of the law? And now we come to the final message, a final call for us to live up to the worthy name by which we are called through the one who has redeemed us. And as is common in Paul's letters, his final thoughts turn a bit more personal in nature. So as we read, we'll pick up in verse 18 this evening of Hebrews 13. The Bible says, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience and in all things willing to live honestly. Paul says, pray for us. Don't let this slip past you. As Paul says, pray for us, we'll find that he references Timothy in a few verses. Timothy and Paul, both being representatives of the gospel, ministers unto these men and women unto whom Paul is writing. And we're reminded that ministers need your prayers. Ministers are susceptible to discouragement. Their failure can have dramatic consequences, not just upon themselves, but upon those whom they lead. It's easy for a minister to get cynical. Nathaniel prayed for me this evening. I always appreciate it when God's people pray for me. Uh, It was was, uh, two weeks ago I was going through various various things as it related to ministry, and and, and my response surprised me a little bit within the course of, of my interactions. And I, uh, I, I had to step back and say, as a minister, am I getting cynical? Because it's easy for a minister to get cynical, uh, to start to look at things and say, what's the point? Why am I trying? What am I doing? To go through the motions. It's easy to get lazy as a minister, to allow, I, I've, got, I've got 10 years of sermons now. It would be easy for me to say, you know what, I'm just going to start recycling those things would be easy to do. Most of you haven't heard of those anyway, you know? So why not? It's easier to fall back upon carnal religious motivations. Carnal, uh, not just motivations, but methods. That's much easier than it is to be spiritual. And all of this commends itself not just to my heart as a minister, but also to your heart as a believer. 
that I, among other ministers, need your prayers, but these things are actually something that we're all tempted to do in our spiritual life, is it not? So Paul's request in verse 18, pray for us. And the content, as it were, of the prayer is then elaborated upon, not just in verse 18, but in verse 19 as well. So he says, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Now, we will talk next week quite a bit more, in our, in our, not next week, the week after, in our morning series, in our morning uh, service in Genesis chapter 3 about the nature of one's conscience. And so we're going to talk a lot more about the conscience coming up. I'm not going to, to talk about all of that this evening, except to say that our conscience, the conclusion is that our conscience is our internal judgment of right and wrong. Our conscience then is enlivened by the revelation of God's truths. So we each have a conscience. We each have this internal ability to judge between right and wrong, not based upon our own standard, not based upon societal standard, not based upon uh, cultural conditioning, but based upon the image of God and man, that God has created us with this um, understanding of, the, uh, of, of certain aspects of right and wrong based upon God's design in the world that is around us. And then as the truths of God's word are shined into our hearts, which is why the Bible is so important, those truths quicken or enliven certain aspects of our conscience, things that we had never thought about before, things that we had never considered before. But as the truths of God's word touch those places of our heart and of our spirit, uh, that, that, that bit of conscience kind of awakens and we realize that we are living either within or outside of things that are right and wrong. But we also understand that our conscience can be calloused. It can be hardened to wrong. And as we see in society today, and as the scriptures teach us, our conscience can even be defiled and inverted to the point where we see right as wrong and wrong as right. And that is the end of a defiled conscience where the things that we see in this world that are right before God, we see as wrong. And the things that are wrong in God's eyes, we see as right. Now, as Paul uses the word conscience here, he is speaking of acting in a way that reflects integrity. Living in good conscience, the idea of living in Integrity That as he and his fellow ministers accomplish their spiritual task, they are praying that they would be able to do so in a manner that has integrity, that is right before the Lord. And this is clear enough through that next phrase, which functions to explain the first. That to have a good conscience in ministry is to be willing to live honestly in all things. And Paul is praying for this as a minister, but again, I trust that we understand that this is not something exclusive to ministers. In fact, integrity is what I would call a foundational virtue. It's a virtue upon which other virtues are built. The idea of integrity is what you see is what you get, that you are who you say you are, that you are doing what that you are acting in a manner that is consistent with who you are. You are who you present yourself. You don't present yourself as something that you are not. You aren't playing a part. You aren't living a lie. You are who you say you are with all of its flaws and with all of its problems. Now, that does not mean we glory in our flaws. That does not mean we air our dirty laundry, but we are who we are. We don't pretend to be something that we're not. This is the idea of 
integrity. And it can be very easy for Christians to fall short of integrity. Because no man can see your heart. The only thing that we see is one another's actions. So if your heart is not where it should be before the Lord, but you don't want people to know that your heart is not where it should be before the Lord, then you can conjure up a false image, a false you, that conforms to the general expectations of others, though it is not actually the way that you are thinking. And in this, you can be relatively effective at hiding truth from people. Now, as a minister, both the opportunity and the temptation to do this is enhanced greatly. Because I don't just have to clean myself up and show up on Sunday to impress folks with my ministerness. I have to be that all the time. I do this all week long. But if my heart isn't there, if I'm supposed to be a good minister, but I'm not there in my heart and in my spirit, well, that becomes evident very quickly. It's something that is, is um, obvious and actually hinders the capacity for me to do what I'm called to do. However, to do what I'm called to do is my livelihood, which means if I don't live up to this minister's expectation, then my livelihood is at risk. And so what many ministers can be tempted to do is play the game, put up the front, phone it in. After all, it doesn't take true spirituality to sound spiritual, does it? We're all probably pretty good at sounding spiritual. Many of us have been hearing what godliness sounds like since we're little itty-bitty ones. Which means we know how to sound good when we pray, and we know how to sound good when we talk, and we know how to play the part and dress the part and look the part. Many of us could be considered professionals in these sorts of actions and dispositions. So it is entirely possible to fake many of the outworkings of the Christian life in any number of ways. And as tempting as that is for the Christian, it is even more so for the man who is called to be a representative of Christ to those around him to put up a false front. And so to this end, Paul's first request is very important. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Pray for ministers that we would have a good conscience, that we would be willing to live honestly, that we would be men who can maintain our integrity, that who we are is what we are, that we're not being fake. And to this end, an exhortation for you. If you are not living in integrity, may I make this personal appeal? You can fool me. I can fool you. We can fool those in the church around us. We can play the game as long as the game benefits us in our community. As long as people, we, we desire the acceptance of these people, we can play that game. But no one who is living outside of integrity is fooling the only person that really matters. No one can fool God. On the day of judgment, you will not stand before me and answer to me. I will not stand before you and answer to you. 
You will not stand before the church and answer to the church. I will not stand before the church and answer to the church. On the day of judgment, we will all stand before God. And we will answer to God. And God, who knows our hearts, is not able, like I am or you are, to be fooled by someone's external trappings. And on that day of judgment, our external trappings will not be the thing that God will use to judge us, but he will judge our hearts, our motives, our intentions. We will answer to this one who searches the hearts and minds of men. And as we answer to him, his light will search every shadow. Nothing will be hid. Every darkness will be made light. And we will give an account. To this end, there is no advantage to you or I in playing that game. Yes, we may avoid upsetting those that are around us. You may avoid upsetting your parents or your pastor or your spouse or your friends or your church. But you are avoiding upsetting them. You are avoiding uh, uh, disappointing them. You are avoiding whatever it might be at the cost of your integrity, thus at the cost of your soul. And it simply isn't worth it. Far better for us to be seen with all of our flaws, but to stand in our integrity so that then as we continue along the path, we can be working toward with the Lord correcting those flaws. Then for people to think that you are something that you are not in order not to make waves or rock the boat or disappoint the other people's expectations of you. So let us be men and women of integrity. Because integrity is a foundational virtue. And if we fall short of, of integrity, we will fail to be able to build upon integrity the many other important virtues that are necessary to live our daily lives before the Lord. To be effective for Him in life and in ministry. To reflect a good testimony of Him to the world that is around us. So Paul asks for them to pray that he and his companions would be ministers of integrity. But this isn't just a request for general integrity. There's actually something more specific at play here. And we find that in verse 19. He says then, But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So the request for prayer, that he might be a man of good conscience and willing to live honestly is then connected to this idea that he may be restored to them the sooner. Now, as we continue, we'll find that Timothy had just been set at liberty, implying perhaps at that time, of course, Timothy, you know, wh whether he had been imprisoned or whether he had just been uh, uh, being held while, while there was a trial against him or whatever it might be, um, it, it's likely that Paul himself is not imprisoned at this time, uh, but perhaps he is in the vicinity of Timothy. We know he's not with Timothy because Timothy might travel to see him, but perhaps he's in the vicinity or perhaps Paul is dealing with his own uh, need to answer for something or, or, or regarding something. We don't really know. But before we think through all the possibilities, I want to go back uh, to something that, that um, I theorized earlier and, and reference it. I told you, way back, quite a ways in, uh, back in Hebrews, that the language of Hebrews lends itself more to being a sermon that is being spoken than a letter that is being written. And in that Paul is now addressing them as if they are not present, as if the people that he's talking to are not with him. He says, I beseech you rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. The implication there being that he is not restored to them at this time, so he's probably not standing before them. We might say, well, pastor, I guess your theory is wrong, which it might be wrong, and I've been wrong before, and that's fine. Um, but 
when we get to verse 22, I, what, what I'd like to show you is that I don't necessarily think that the idea that Paul is not with them in chapter 13 does not necessarily mean that, first, this is not a transcribed sermon, and even necessarily that Paul was not with them in chapters 1 through 12. And I think you'll see what I mean when we get to verse 22. But as it relates to Paul's request for prayer here, he seems to directly connect his restoration to the readers in some way to the prayer of the readers for his integrity and honest living. And so the question then is, how do these things connect? And we don't have any direct insight, but we can perhaps surmise that Paul was either under some sort of trial or maybe some judgment, or maybe perhaps he was just uh, traveling and, and felt no capacity to be able to get to them. We'll see that he was writing from Italy. If he was writing from Italy, that would mean Rome, because that's the only place in Italy Paul ever went, which means maybe at this time he was under that house arrest. Uh, we do know from the other epistles that Paul was expecting and hoping that he would leave Rome again, though it never happened, that he was hoping that his house arrest would end, that he, though he knew he had to go to Rome and represent himself before Caesar, would then be released and that he could travel once again and see the other believers. So it is perhaps within that vein that he was writing to these Hebrews, that he was hoping that he would be be restored to them once Timothy had been uh, released and would come and that they might together be able to go and continue along their journeys, though we know that that never ended up happening uh, in hindsight. So we would presume that maybe this was the idea here. Now, what is the connection between this idea of Paul being restored to them and his integrity? Again, we don't exactly know, except that it's quite possible, if we think with our glorified imaginations, um, that maybe Paul was facing a situation where his integrity was going to be on the line. Whether this was the idea that he felt as though maybe he was being tempted to lie because if he just said what somebody told him he needed to say, then they'd release him. Or maybe it was that um, he was praying that his integrity would be the thing that would allow him to be restored or be released. It's not too difficult necessarily to connect the dots between a prayer for integrity and a prayer for a restoration of some manner of liberty. So that is Paul's request to the church on his behalf that they would pray for him, that he and the ministers around him would be men of integrity even in times where they were facing consequences for that. And that's the last thing I want to say about integrity before we move on, is that one of the reasons why we often fail to live in integrity is because integrity often comes with consequences. But far be it from us to yield spiritual reward for the sake of avoiding earthly consequences. Much better for us to stand in our integrity and face the consequences of that in the the here and now than to face the consequences of not standing in our integrity before the throne of of judgment. Okay, so that was the, the initial prayer. The substance of Paul's prayer for them is then seen in verses 20 and 21. Paul says... Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there's much going on in this prayer. First, we find that the prayer is directed toward God the Father 
and this is as we would expect. And what I mean by this is that apart from those who cry out to Jesus during his earthly ministry and say something to the effect of Jesus, save me, that's Peter sinking in the water and he cries out to Jesus, or, or um, the blind man who cries out to Jesus, apart from those who cried out to Jesus during his earthly ministry, there is no example in the scriptures of anybody praying to Jesus when Jesus taught us to pray, and every example we see in scriptures regarding prayer is to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Son. Now, there are many today who address various prayers to Jesus and even at times prayers to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, there are even a couple of songs that we sing where we are, we are kind of singing a prayer and there is an invocation of a singing of a prayer to both uh, to the Father and the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And while this is not necessarily an issue of great danger or any uh, um, uh, tremendous problem per se, we do recognize the opportunity whenever we come to one of these sorts of prayers uh, to be doctrinally accurate and consistent and to recognize that the Bible teaches that when we pray, we pray to the Father, not to the Son. We pray to the Father in the authority of Jesus or in Jesus' name with the intercession of the Spirit of God on our behalf. So then Paul prays to the Father, called here the God of peace, and he prays that God would make them, that would be the readers, perfect in every good work, in order that they might do his will by working in them those things that are well-pleasing in his sight. Now, of course, we know what those things are, those things that are well-pleasing in his sight. We've talked about it quite a bit. Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 in particular. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith and obedience to God is God working in them those things which are well-pleasing in His sight. And notice that it is God working in them, God that works in them both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That this is not something that we conjure up within ourselves, but it is God who works it in us as we submit to Him. The things which Paul described in this chapter are also, uh, uh, can also fall into this. We have seen in this chapter the call to give thanks, to do good, to regard authority, to remember those that are suffering, to entertain strangers. Paul's desire is that those who read and listen would be perfected in these good works. And the idea, as we regularly say, of perfection here is not the concept of becoming flawless, right? None of us is perfect and none of us will be perfect in this life if we think about the concept of sinlessness or flawlessness. But the concept of perfection in the scriptures is to be finished or to be complete, being a whole man, being all that is, having all that is required unto our nature and our kind, to attain the fullness of a virtue. And of course, we can't do that without integrity, as Paul has already prayed for. But then to add to that integrity all of these good works and thus become finished or complete in the fullness of that which God's will has for us in this earth. And this is Paul's prayer for us. And this is our goal at Legacy Baptist Church. And it's our goal at Legacy Baptist Church because this is God's goal for us. Steady growth unto completion, unto perfection in every good work. Now that sounds like a big task. How can such a monumental task be performed in our lives? A monumental spiritual reality. How can it be achieved in us? How can we achieve, as it were, perfection? Well, and that's found in the parts of the prayers that I kind of skipped over. Paul does say here, through Jesus Christ, 
the Jesus who is our Lord, the one who is risen from the dead, the shepherd of his sheep, the one who shed his blood in order to establish for us the everlasting covenant under which we operate. And through Jesus, we are called into this end of perfection. And then when we think about it that way, when we remember that we rest under the blood of the everlasting covenant of grace, when we remember that Jesus is that great shepherd who leads us, as David said, beside the still waters and who restores our soul, when we remember that God is in fact that God of peace, not a God of wrath, but a God of peace, a God of peace who we have peace with through that everlasting covenant secured by Jesus Christ himself for us, that Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God and he has purchased for us that peace so that we have forgiveness through his blood. Well, then all of a sudden the task of what's being called here, called what, for, for what, which we are being called here, gets a little more clear. And in a sense, it becomes a little bit more attainable. If we are called to fulfill the will of God through Jesus Christ, who is the one who purchased for us this great everlasting covenant, well, then we do as Christ has called us, and as we do as Christ has called us, we attain unto that perfection and unto what has Christ called us. Well, in John 15, Jesus said this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. For without me, ye can do nothing. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever, as I abide in him, as I walk in his way, Jesus walks a path and I follow in his footsteps, then I am confirmed in every good work and I am brought unto perfection. So then what do I do? I follow Jesus. I get to know Jesus. I read his word. I believe his word. I obey his word. I am well-pleasing in his sight. And if I am well-pleasing in his sight, well, he is well-pleasing in the sight of the Father who has accepted the gift of, the, of his finished work on the cross through the everlasting covenant. And I continue unto perfection. So we boil all of that idea of of being well-pleasing in God's sight and perfection down to this thing. If you want that for yourself, do this. Follow Jesus. Abide in him. Verse 22. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Paul then goes back to another request. So he asked them to pray for him, and then he said effectively that this prayer was for integrity. Then he made a prayer for them that they would be well-pleasing in God's sight. And then now he has a request of them. He says, I beseech you, suffer the word of exhortation. The word here used, suffer, is not the idea of suffering like affliction or like pain, but rather the concept of endurance, holding something up, sustaining it. And in this case, the call would be to sustain or to hold up the word of exhortation. Now, this bears what might be a similar call to that which we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, where Paul calls upon the listener to endure chastening, right? To allow the, the, the chastening hand of the Lord to have its work and to be willing to endure said chastening. That is, Paul both comforts and compels them in letter that they take the words that he has given to them and they regard them as important and they hold them up. They endure them. They suffer them. They receive them with gladness. 
And of course, this carries a couple of flavors. The first flavor is that one from Hebrews 12, not to despise the chastening of the Lord. Paul is perhaps anticipating that these words might not be taken well or that they might be ones that would be hard for them. So he says, endure them, suffer them, hold them up, uh, though they might be hard words to retain, though they might be things that are difficult to receive. Receive them nonetheless in faith. And the second, the exhortation from this chapter, not just to, to, to hold up the words that he has given to them, but also to hold up him as their minister. Chapter 13, he says, remember them that, that have rule among you. And so perhaps that is the idea as well, to take the words of the letter and to hold to them, to regard them, to care about them deeply. Now, I mentioned already earlier in the message that verse 22 is going to help us understand why it may be that Paul might very well have been in their presence when he preached chapters 1 through 12, but that chapter 13 might be something different. And now let me show you why. It's in this one word that Paul gives here that seems very out of place for this letter. Few. And the reason why I find this interesting is because Hebrews is not a short book. Now, Hebrews is not one of the longest books. If we were to think through the various lengths of the books of the Bible here, here's a graphic of the various lengths of the Bible, you'll find that Hebrews is nowhere near the length of the epistle, or of the gospels, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then of course Acts, um, which is the history. These are significantly longer than Hebrews. But as it comes to the Pauline epistles, we have Romans and 1 Corinthians, both of which are longer than Hebrews. Then Hebrews is number three, and Hebrews is significantly longer than any of Paul's epistles, other than those two. As far as the other epistles, they are significantly shorter. Now, Paul says, I have written a letter unto you in few words, and that doesn't necessarily fit into what we find when we look at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is not a short book. As I've said, it's not as long as the Gospels, but it is the third longest of Paul's books, and it is nearly 5,000 words long. Now, for reference... When I transcribe one of my sermons, when I write it out to preach it, uh, my, each of my sermons typically tends to be around 10,000 words. And that accounts for an hour at the rather quick rate that I speak. When a, a journalist writes an article, if they were to write a 10,000-word article, this would have been the culmination of several weeks worth of work. A 10,000-word article would be a very large, very comprehensive article, something uh, that would effectively probably give them a paycheck for about a month's worth of work if they were to put together only one 10,000-word article. So a 5,000-word book, specifically when it's being written on papyrus, is not a small work. That is quite a large writing. So that leads us to the natural question then. Is Paul talking about Hebrews? <laughs> right? Was there another epistle that he wrote that he, he packaged along with this one that he wanted them to read? Because Hebrews is not a letter unto them in few words. And so I present to you a theory. 
And this is uh, something that I haven't necessarily read. I, there's one other person who spoke of this that I've read about. Because, so, and I, when it, Whenever I have a strange theory, I always go and I try to read as many commentaries to see if someone else has ever thought this same idea. And believe it or not, someone else has thought this idea, so I'm not too far out on this one. Um, not to say I don't necessarily hold theories if no one else thinks of them, but, but this one I'm not necessarily alone on. I think, particularly because the rest of the book of Hebrews is focused upon this idea of the exclusivity of Christ, and Hebrews 13 does not necessarily follow that same line of thinking. Hebrews chapter 12 ends with a declarative statement, our God is a consuming fire, which sounds not just declarative, but quite conclusive. Chapter 13 is more scattered. It is more uh, miscellaneous in its ideas. What if the letter that Paul wrote to the Hebrews this time around was only chapter 13? Appended to what we might believe to be a transcribed sermon that either he had preached to them previously or he had preached to another group of Hebrews that he wanted this group to read. However, the letter itself was only chapter 13. Then Paul preaches this great sermon about the superiority of Christ, and the final words which he gave in that sermon were, for our God is a consuming fire. And then if he were in the vein of Pastor Wickler, he would have said, let's close in a word of prayer. Right? And then he takes that message which was transcribed, which he had preached, and he packages it together with a letter in few words, effectively one chapter of scripture, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 25. And that begins with, let brotherly love continue. And he gives these miscellaneous expectations that he had laid upon the church based upon what he had heard of them and how they were doing. And he packages that together with this transcribed sermon and he sends it so that he has written to them a letter in few words, that being Hebrews 13, also packaged with this transcribed sermon that he had preached either to them or to some other group at another point and he was sending along their way. So that's my theory as to why this is. To that end then, I do believe still that Hebrews 1 through 12 reflect uh, a, a manner of speaking that is more sounding like speaking than necessarily of writing. But that also then, that was packaged and sent to this group of people along with a brief letter, that letter being Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 25. It's hard to believe otherwise that Paul uh, would call all of Hebrews a letter written in few words. We finish then in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 23 through 25. It says, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. As Paul concludes, then he informs them that Timothy has been set at liberty. Again, whether this is a formal imprisonment or perhaps just a trial, we do not know. And Paul states that if Timothy came shortly, presumably to where Paul was in Italy, then perhaps they might be able then to come together and to see them. I mentioned already, if Paul is in Italy, then he is in Rome. If Paul is in Rome, then he's probably under house arrest, as that was the only time he was in Rome. But that Paul did believe that he was going to be set at liberty at some point. It did not end up happening, but he was hoping it would happen. And thus, that would be reflected in what we read here. Paul then finalizes his letter with this phrase, Grace be with you all. 
Amen. After he, those of Italy in the church there salute the readers of this epistle. I've mentioned already that in 2 Timothy, uh, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul mentioned that this phrase, grace be with you all, amen, or that general phrase was a token in every one of Paul's epistles. It was kind of his calling card. It was his sign-off. And I told you at the beginning of the book that it was for this reason that I do believe Paul is the one who's writing this epistle. Maybe it is that if we wanted to merge a few theories, maybe Paul did not preach or write that sermon, Hebrews chapters 1 through 12, but that he did write the letter and package someone else's sermon with his letter. I think that that's going a little bit, getting a bit too complicated. But one way or another, I do believe that Paul signed this letter off because it bears the calling card that he said was the mark in every one of his epistles, as he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17. And he, he, he signs off the way he always does, grace be with you all. And so ends the book of Hebrews. And as we close, let me do so with a few final points. First, let us strive, uh, excuse me, let us live honestly. I've mentioned this already, how important integrity is. Truth is the essential virtue of the Christian life. The whole essence of what it is to be a Christian is to cling to a set of truths, to recognize those truths to be, to transcend the human experience. Without truth, the Christian is nothing. And without integrity, the truth is nothing. When I am not living a lie, not living in hypocrisy, I am living in integrity. When I'm not living in integrity, I am living a lie. Thus, I have no testimony. Christian, live honestly. Have integrity. This matters, not just because of the day of judgment, but it matters for our testimony, our testimony in the community, our testimony before our children, our testimony before one another. If we do not have integrity, we don't have testimony. Let's have integrity. One of my favorite descriptions of this concept is also written by Paul. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, there's that word again, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you, word. Simplicity and godly sincerity. Would to God this would be the testimony of our consciences among one another and before the world. Not living in fleshly wisdom, but living by the grace of God. Having our conversation both in the world and in the church to be a reflection of simplicity and godly sincerity. Would that our interactions would be filled with, would not be filled with innuendos or with doublespeak or with passive aggressive posturing so often found in the world that is around us. But rather we say what we mean and we mean what we say. We are, our, our kindness is a reflection of, of, of that which is bubbling out of our hearts. Our generosity is a reflection of our love for the Lord and for others. Would that we wouldn't need to hedge our bets, bets and cover our backs one with another. Would that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have uh, gossip and innuendo and cliques forming around uh, uh, various groups within this church pitted against one another. Would that this would not be the way that we would live, but rather we would live with clarity and honesty, with godliness, with simplicity and godly sincerity. 
And may that be the testimony of our lives as individuals, as families, and as a church. Second, let us strive for perfection. Now, Paul is not giving a list of any sort in these final words. But in that we find integrity to be so foundational, certainly it must be in place before we can talk about perfection. So we start with integrity. And when at once we have integrity and we're living in simplicity and godly sincerity, then we are in that position where we can progress into perfection. Toward being complete in Christ. You and I are flawed. We're flawed in big ways. But every day is a new day. Every decision is a new decision. We hit bumps along the road. We get discouraged. We get selfish. We get distracted. We get tired. We get lazy. And all of those things can be overcome as long as we're humble and honest standing in our integrity, as long as we're willing to admit that we need work, we're willing to acknowledge that we need growth. Because the one thing that truly stops spiritual growth dead in its tracks is hypocrisy. When I stop being moldable, when I pretend as though I don't need to continue to grow, but instead, as we stand in integrity and as we acknowledge our faults, then we are able to continue to strive for perfection. We are able to take that one step forward every day. We are able to move forward in our Christian lives. So Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, you have not already attained, neither have I. We as a church have not already attained. It isn't that we are already perfect, but we strive for perfection. We keep pressing. We humble ourselves. We stand in our integrity. We are who we are. We're honest with ourselves and others. That doesn't mean that we're satisfied with where we are. We keep pressing. We keep striving. We keep moving. We keep improving. We confess our sins. We forsake our sins. We get up. We move on. We proclaim what we desire to be. We don't give ourselves excuses, but we also recognize that we are human. We press toward the mark that we may receive the prize. So let's strive honestly. Let's strive for perfection. Third, let us suffer the words of exhortation. A part of humility is teachability. Recognizing that we don't have all the answers, avoiding the dangers and the pitfalls of being absolutists in the way that we look at the world that is around us, being unwilling to regard any other thoughts, any other ideas. We need to avoid those things. There are many ways to think through this concept, but perhaps the easiest way is to study history. And to understand that for all that our fathers got right, they also had fundamental pitfalls in thoughts and in actions and in priorities. And we don't say that we stand above those who have gone before us, except to the extent that we acknowledge that we can see farther because we stand upon their shoulders. But what we understand from looking back upon the generations of those who have gone before us is that everyone has blind spots. Everyone has things that they simply do not see 
in their day and in their generation that future generations will look back upon and they will say that was a problem. But God forbid that we would ever come to the point where we are unwilling to suffer words of exhortation, where we are unwilling to tolerate teaching, where we are unwilling to tolerate disagreement or rebuke. These are things that we should crave. When somebody comes up and says, maybe you should think through a different manner of of walking, of thinking, of, of doing. That is something that we should look at. Now, maybe we've already looked at it. Maybe we've already considered it. Maybe we don't have to consider it for long because we've already fought that battle. We've already wrestled with those ideas. But these are not bad things. It is good to be exhorted. It is good to be criticized. It is good to be stretched. It is good to be challenged. It is good to have disagreements in order that we all might be made better. Let us suffer the words of exhortation. Clay must be molded and trimmed if it is to become a beautiful uh, sculpture. And if we sit in what we call today in our world an echo chamber, and there is no exhortation left, and you come here every week simply to be affirmed in your way of thinking, and I come here every week simply to be affirmed in my way of speaking, then we are going to very quickly stop progressing. Gold must be melted if it needs to be refined. Sculptures must be carved if they are going to be molded and trimmed if they're going to become a beautiful sculpture. And the day that we shut our ears to exhortation is the day that we stop growing unto perfection. So let us suffer the words of exhortation in the vein of what Solomon exhorted in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Fourth and finally, let us be faithful. Now, this is not from the text, our our context this evening. This is from the whole text. This is Hebrews in a nutshell. A call into faith, faith in Jesus Christ, a determination to follow a superior way through the blood of the everlasting covenant, carefully, lovingly, deliberately dying to self and living to Christ, devoting ourselves to this way, which is the way, the truth, and the life through whom alone we can come to the Father. And this is the exhortation of Hebrews. This is the exhortation of our Lord. The exhortation which I desire to leave with you in this series. So our Lord compelled us in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now is the exhortation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was an exhortation in this vein unto this idea that we be faithful, that we be willing to set ourselves on the altar, come after Christ, Take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. This is actually the entire exhortation of Hebrews. That if Christ is indeed so much superior to the angels, to the law that was given by the disposition of angels, to Melchizedek, to all of these Old Testament exhortations and ideas, then let us not be ashamed, let us not be hesitant to commit ourselves wholly to following him. And may we do so as we conclude this this series in Hebrews. 
following that one who is, in fact, the great shepherd of the sheep, the mediator of this new covenant. May we be renewed in our exhortations to strive into perfection, to stand in integrity, to do good, these good things. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.